Listen now to the Word of God. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the Word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed and After being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought that you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray that the Lord, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So reads the word of God. We come to the place in Luke's story of the early church where the gospel, the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ as we saw it referred to here, the Word of God, the Word of the Lord, was beginning to spread throughout Judea and Samaria, just as Jesus had said it would. And as we saw last week, that spread was happening due to the persecution of the church. The opposition that was kicked up against those new believers in Jesus in the wake of Stephen's martyrdom, in the wake of Stephen being put to death, had scattered these folks throughout those areas. We have to make a point out of that before we move on because it's key. 
persecution is the means by which the sovereign God of the universe is moving His people out in, witnesses, in witness to the places where He has told them to go. He does it through persecution. It spreads the church. It cleanses the church. It focuses the church. It motivates the church. And it causes the church to go out into the world with the message. It's the means God used for spreading them in just the way He said they would be spread. And any number of those who weren't fleeing... The text tells us in the opening three verses of this chapter that the apostles stayed right there in Jerusalem. They didn't scatter. They're still overseeing the church there, but the, the Christians spread out. And both of these were according to the will of God. But any number of those who weren't fleeing Jerusalem or for some reason couldn't flee Jerusalem, we also see here were dragged off to prison by an angry Saul. That's the introduction to this chapter in the wake of what happened with Stephen. Sounds terrifying, wouldn't you say? Imagine being driven by your home from persecution happening, poured out on the church in this given area. And those of you who either can't or won't flee end up in prison, both men and women. Terrifying picture. Verse 4 that's the setting. Let's see what happens. What are they doing? And yet those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So as they were scattering, as they were fleeing from Jerusalem, evidently for their lives, or at very least for their freedom, all along the way, they were running for their lives. They were proclaiming the gospel as they went. So it wasn't silencing them. It was just spreading them out. Verse 5, Philip went down to a city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Now, Samaria is north, but it's down in elevation, so that's how it's referred to here. This was the capital of the northern tribes when the kingdom split after the reign of Solomon some thousand years earlier. And that's part of the story here. Philip went down to the city of Samaria, perhaps to a city of Samaria, but probably the the capital city, and proclaimed to them the Christ. Philip, who was likely a Hellenist because of his name, Greek-speaking Jew, one of the seven who were chosen back in Acts chapter 6 to serve the Jerusalem church, to handle the daily distribution of food so that the apostles could devote themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Philip went down to the capital city of the Samaritans, which were a despised people group. At this point in history, between the time when the kingdom was divided and now when Christ has come, this group had moved back into this region, a group of half-breeds, Jews that had been paired with the Assyrians who brought them into captivity. So they were despised by the Jews of the southern kingdom. He went to the capital of Samaria, those half-breeds, and preach Jesus to them. One commentator said, it is hard for us to conceive the boldness of this step Philip took. The hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans had lasted about a thousand years. This would be like Civil War soldiers going to 
native tribes with the gospel. It would be like members of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham going to the local KKK with the gospel. This is tearing down lines. This is the power of the gospel and the love of God through the people being made known. Philip goes to Samaria. So we need to track with this occurrence just, just for the enjoyment of hearing what happened. This is a great story that is going on. It's laden with significance. But then we also need to see and hear what it's showing us and telling us because much is at stake here, which is pretty significant importance to us, I believe, more through an illustration than through the straightforward teaching of this text. The straightforward teaching of the text is just that the gospel went to Samaria, people received it and believed, and there was opposition from a magician that was exposed. That's the story. But we can take more from it than that. Let's walk through this story in three steps. And you see them listed there in your bulletin, the outline we're going to follow. Very simple. First, Philip's ministry in Samaria. That's verses 4 through 13. And then Peter and John come in from Jerusalem. Their ministry in Samaria, verses 14 through 25. And then two matters of importance to us. It just says matters there, but you can put the number two in front of it. Two matters of importance to us. There are many we could draw on, but we're going to spotlight two that I think are particularly helpful. First of all, then, Philip's ministry in Samaria. Philip is one of those scattered by the persecution who's preaching the word of God as he went. And he went down to the city of Samaria, proclaimed Christ to them, verse 6, and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what he was saying. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, why? Luke tells us, for Unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. Something we've already seen in Acts as Peter was used by God to heal a lame man. Now Philip in Samaria is doing it with many, it would appear. This was catching the people's attention. They're listening to what he's saying. And they're responding with faith and repentance. Philip, this servant of the church, just like Stephen had been, was doing the very same miracles that Jesus had done and that the apostles were now doing, and indeed like Stephen had been doing, chapter 6, verse 8, before he was put to death. These messengers were enabled by God to validate his message with miracles, and especially so as it moved into a new area. So, verse 8, there was much joy in this city. Their disturbed people were being calmed. Their, their infirmed people were being delivered. And the city was in great joy. But that was about to be tested because when the only true expression of spiritual life and power enters a new region that has previously been saturated with false expressions of those very same things, false expressions of spiritual life and power, then a power encounter is necessarily going to ensue, and it does right here. Here in Samaria, that happened as Philip met Simon the magician, or Simon Magus, as he is called, a, a, a word whose root is magic. 
But he's known on the pages of history and the commentaries as Simon Magus. And he is called in later writings um, the father of many heresies. Uh, it's even believed that he was the father of all Gnostic divergences from the gospel. Justin Martyr in his second century apology described a Samaritan Simon who did mighty acts of magic so that he was considered God and was worshipped not only by almost all the Samaritans, but even by some in Rome who erected a statue in his honor. According to Irenaeus, also in that second century, Simon was the father of many heresies. This is the man that's being talked about here at the time where it seems as though he made a profession of faith. Here we're told of his own assertion first, though, that he himself was somebody great, verse 9. The way this is stated, it seems like he thought of himself as the instantiation of God in the midst of the people. And the Samaritan people bought it because of all that he did. Verse 10, they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. They couldn't explain the things that they saw Simon doing. And they paid attention to him for a long time. He had amazed them with his magic. But then Philip came to town with the gospel. We're set up for a power encounter. Philip came to town and showed them something even greater than what they had seen through Simon. He preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. We see here in verse 12. And they believed him. They were baptized, both men and women. And Luke records, verse 13, even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. The tables had turned. Simon Magus had never seen anything like this. He and the others were now amazed at what they were seeing through Philip and they were paying attention to him, the very same language that had been used with regard to Simon. Philip is the perfect contrast here. They paid attention to Philip and to the power of the gospel. That's essentially his ministry there in Samaria. And as a result, the word spread, moving into Peter and John's time here in this city. Verse 14, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, somehow the news got back to them, they sent to them Peter and John. We'll see this again in Acts, this practice, where representatives from the Jerusalem church are dispatched to check out work in other places as it goes on. Or where they have to come back to Jerusalem and give account of their work. We see both of these happening in the book of Acts. This Jerusalem church was the one through whom the Spirit had been given and now through whom the message of the gospel is being affirmed or confirmed, we might even say. Here it's Peter and John who go to Samaria. We have to pause just a moment and note that, that it was John. All right, John who with his brother James, had once offered to call down fire from heaven 
to consume a Samaritan city because of their failure to receive Jesus properly. Master, do you want us to call down fire from heaven on these people? Now here, Peter and John came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. You might say the true fire from heaven is what John ended up having the privilege of mediating for this region of Samaria. They came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Verse 16, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is a challenging statement here. This one catches our attention. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. In, in, in what other name do they need to be baptized? This st- kind of stands in contrast to what we see later on as the gospel goes to the nations in Ephesus. And there they had only known the baptism of John. And so that was clarified and rectified in the city at that time. But here, they'd only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. What's being talked about here? You could spend a lot of time talking about options. I'm going to give you where I think the best one comes from. I think Calvin in his commentary does the best job here. I believe that when he says that the Samaritans had not yet received the Spirit, he's not talking in absolute terms. When he says, surely the Samaritans had received the Spirit, this is how Calvin put it, in the sense that they had received Christ. They had genuinely believed and they'd been baptized in His name. They'd been born again of the Spirit, so the Spirit's work was upon Him, but they had not yet received those manifestations of the Spirit that confirm and adorn and display the presence and the work of the Gospel. The gifts of the Spirit, perhaps. And especially so in ways that these people would recognize in these days as the church was just beginning. That affirmation awaited the arrival of the apostles. In verse 17, it happened at that point. Then they, meaning Peter and John, laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Why the separation? Because it doesn't happen anywhere else in the book of Acts this way or in the letters. We don't understand the Gospel to be spread this way. Some separate act where you receive Christ and then later receive the Spirit. Why here? It at once confirmed two things. And here, I believe, is where we get some help. First, that the Samaritans' belief in Christ was genuine. It received that confirmation from the Jerusalem church who had been seeing these things happen there. So at once, the Samaritans' genuine saving belief was confirmed by this visit from Peter and John. And second, full continuity of this work in Samaria with the work that was already happening in Jerusalem. I think that's what we see here as well. There is no doubt that Scripture tells us that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. The the apostles themselves were the messengers trained by Jesus to take the church and spread it to the nations. And here in these early days, it is being confirmed that it is indeed an apostolic ministry under apostolic authority. And as we see this work happening through Philip in Samaria... This follow-up from Peter and John and the way that it happens confirms both their saving belief and the unity of this work with what has been going on up until now. But that's the very same act that touched off the problem with Simon. 
because it seems to have awakened some old desires in him if they weren't already still present, even so. Or maybe it revealed that his profession of faith in Christ was never real to begin with. We really don't know which, and I don't think it's particularly profitable to try to figure out which it was, but I do believe that the story of Simon is given to us for a reason, and I believe we can learn some things from it. Let's work through this section together. Verse 18 says, When Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also that I may, that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Simon saying, I've never seen magic like this. Verse 20, But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You thought you could buy the Spirit with money. You thought you could buy the transmission of the gospel with money. You have no part in any of this, Peter said, in effect. Verse 21. The one thing you can do, Simon, verse 22, repent and pray that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven. That would be worth taking apart as well and understanding what that charge means from Peter. Is it possible for Simon to repent and be cleansed at this point? And I would say yes, it is. What's not certain is whether Simon will actually do that, repent and believe. But if he does, surely the grace of God is sufficient to cover even this sin that thought that the blessing of God could be purchased with money. Well, let's not get caught too deeply in just that statement. Let's move on and see where this goes. Simon didn't listen to him. At least he didn't do exactly what Peter recommended, repent and pray that the Lord might cleanse him. He actually asked Peter to pray for him instead. Verse 24. And then this section comes to a close. They returned home preaching the gospel to many more in Samaria. So the word of God is spreading through Samaria just as Jesus had charged his disciples back in chapter 1. You'll be my witnesses to Jerusalem, all Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And we've seen that happen and we're moving through the story of the early church here. But let's pause at this point and think about what we just heard. Two matters of importance to us. We want to jump right in to give some time to this reflection. Meeting Simon Magus here in this passage introduces to us a real-life example of a type of person that we need to meet and to understand. He's an illustration to us of something we need to know and we need to grasp. He is perhaps a clarification of something to us that is mysterious to us in our understanding of Scripture. And we get to the heart of that by remembering the very words of Jesus as the Sermon on the Mount came to a close. Jesus said some chilling words near the end of that sermon that trouble many and still confuse us in some ways today. You'll recognize them. Verses 21 through 23 of Matthew chapter 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not 
prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, says Jesus, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Chilling statement. We can hear Jesus' words and think, how can that be? Prophesy, cast out demons, do many mighty works? You never knew us? How can that be? Simon Magus might just show us. At least he shows us one way that this could happen. There are many people who see and appreciate the presence of God and the power of the gospel in the lives of believers. And that causes them to sidle up alongside the church where they try to get faith to work for their advantage, to achieve some desired end or to eliminate some undesired pattern of life or even just to feel better about themselves. They see something in the gospel that makes sense. They see the love of the body and they think, wow, it's a community I'd like to be a part of. But it doesn't come necessarily with repentance and faith. It's entirely possible to move in and among the church only in order to broaden your client base or improve your prospects of finding a spouse or to access a trustworthy array of children's activities. There are many reasons why someone might come alongside the church and appreciate deeply what goes on here? You may be willing to serve here. To serve there. Just to retain the privilege of these advantages that you've observed. To purchase them, so to speak. You may even go the full route to participate in the rituals of baptism and membership. Just because the church feels like a, a significant or a safe place to be or just an appropriate or proper involvement for upstanding people in a well-rounded life. So again, you just pay your dues to be part of the fellowship, so to speak. But there's a problem there in that scenario because nowhere in it do we see that inescapable awareness of the depth of your own personal sin and of the need by some means to deal with that before a holy God or your utter helplessness to do anything about that on your own apart from His intervention. That is what, essential, what is essential to being reconciled to God and therefore becoming part of the body of Christ. There's been no time when you've pled for forgiveness or embraced like a lifeline the death of Christ as your substitute sin bearer and to His resurrection as your only hope of true life. 
And even if there has been such an encounter, it was so long ago and so far away that you can barely remember it. And even more important, it surely isn't the the repeated experience each time you confront your own sin anew and afresh. You don't return to repentance and faith. Why is it that in our services we retell the gospel every Sunday morning? Hear again our sinful condition before God and remind ourselves of His affirmation of cleansing through the work of Christ. Why? Because, my friends, we could find ourselves in a place where we suddenly doubt it, and that rehearsed script needs to be present in our minds to carry us through such a time. What do I do at such a time and place? I confess my sin, and I hear the affirmation of God's forgiveness and cleansing, just like we do together, week by week, in our worship services. Instead of that, though, instead of clinging to the gospel and clinging to the death and the resurrection of Christ as the means of your reconciliation to God and of your identity among His people, instead, the inclination of many is just to to use this place, to use the church and the rich community and fellowship that's there to manage life a little better, to manage stress. And along with that, alongside of it, you make sure you get enough time to yourself, you make sure you have enough trips to the spa, enough personal downtime to recoup and to recover, hopefully to refresh. Nothing wrong with any one of these, except when the gospel is just sort of put right alongside it. It is one more way that you pursue this kind of refreshment. And your Christianity, your engagement with Christ then fits into these other things, fits in and among them. That means it's primarily for you, for your benefit. It helps you enjoy life. It helps you feel better about yourself and your service, giving back a bit, serving a nonprofit, a charity. Church then serves you, not vice versa. It improves your life. It makes you feel more whole, more well-rounded, even more powerful in some respects. My friends, this is a whole lot like the approach of Simon Magus in Acts 8. At crunch time, it became clear that he was more interested in improving his own life, increasing his own power than in a solution for his sin or reconciliation with a holy God. He wasn't glad to leave that behind. He was still drawn to it and wanted another source, personal power for personal exaltation. So he heard words from Peter that sound a lot like the words we hear from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Peter said to him, you have neither part nor lot in this matter and never knew you. For your heart is not right before God. This is the first matter that is of importance to us to understand and to appreciate. We can live and move in and among the church. We can enjoy the fellowship. We can even be amazed at the presence of God and the power of the gospel without ever having savingly believed in Jesus. That's an important thing to know. Wouldn't you agree? 
If it's possible to do that, I want to know about it because what I want is the genuine article that reconciles me to a holy God through the sacrifice of His Son. This is the matter of first importance to us here. And second, the solution to this is to notice and to attend to the primary player in this passage, to the predominant presence. And just to let you know, it's not Simon Magus, it's not Philip, it's not even Peter or John. It shows up in varying wordings a number of times through this passage. Verses 4 and 5 and 6, several times in verse 12, verse 14, by inference in verses 15 and 17, then a couple of more times in verse 25 as the text comes to a close. What am I talking about? I'm talking about the Word of God. That's how it's stated in verse 14, kind of an echo of it in verse 4. I'm talking about the Word of the Lord. That's how it's referred to in verse 25. The message of Christ, verse 5. The good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, verse 12. This is that entity whose spread is being traced by Luke here in Acts as it goes out into all the world. It's that means by which we hear and believe and are saved and therefore receive the Holy Spirit. It happens through the Word of God. Paul, for instance, made a couple of key observations with the Romans in Romans chapter 10, sandwiched around a series of questions. First, the affirmation that Paul made was, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Familiar statement from Scripture, Old and New Testament. Then he asked in the next few verses, how then will they call on him whom they not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Just walking through how the gospel comes to us. And then he concluded in verse 17 of Romans 10, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. It's the means by which the gospel comes to us. The proclamation of the very Word of God and our spirit-enabled response to it to believe it, to embrace it, and to live according to it. That is a summary description of faith and repentance. That's just what we're seeing here in Acts 8 as well, by the way. The Word of Christ is being preached, and the Samaritans are receiving it and getting saved in fulfillment of God's sovereign work. But we're also seeing that it's possible to respond to the gospel in ways other than faith and repentance. That's important for us to see and to know. We can embrace the gospel because it works well with the sort of person we want to perceive ourselves to be. And it can maybe help others perceive us that way as well. It has that added benefit. But that receiving of the gospel doesn't save us sort of self-improvement, affirmation of the gospel. doesn't save. It just leaves us hearing Peter's words to Simon. It, it risks hearing Jesus' words at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. 
the alternative, the right way to respond to the gospel, the saving way, is to see and to acknowledge our sin that it exposes and our helplessness to do anything about that. That's what we need to see in the gospel. We're not impressed by our own greatness at the time of our confrontation with the gospel. Quite the opposite. We are overwhelmed by a sense of our darkness and our need. It's Isaiah before the presence of God as we read that scene earlier from Isaiah chapter 6. Woe is me, I am under judgment because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. I've got nothing, God. That's the prophet Isaiah when encountered with the person of the saving God. We're not impressed by our greatness at that time. We fall on our faces before the thrice holy God and acknowledge our absolute need of Him. We're grieved by our sin, truly grieved by it. Paul wrote about this as well to the Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, distinguishing this grief from the sort of self-promoting grief that just wants to keep up public impressions. Perhaps the grief that Simon showed here when he asked Peter to pray for him. A grief that's just concerned about the fact that he looks bad at the moment in the eyes of others. That isn't a grief that goes to the very heart of our being that recognizes our sin is separating us from God. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 7, Godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. There's a difference. You can grieve the public impression of your sin and of who you are. You can grieve the undeniable reality of your sin that separates you from God until it is cleansed in Christ and then complicates every step of the way between now and when we're finally delivered into His presence and freed from it all. And you handle that ongoing repeat of the impedance of the desires of the flesh, just as we read from Romans a few minutes ago. You handle it the very same way you did initially when the gospel was first implanted in your heart. When your eyes were first opened to the sense of your need, you respond with faith, belief, trust, and repentance. Turning away from sin. Clinging once again to the shed blood of Christ as the sacrifice that reconciles you to God. That's the salvation that works. We need to know the difference between these two. These two expressions of grief, these two understandings of responding to the gospel. We need to understand the difference between them. And Peter and John's encounter with Simon might just be helpful to us to see it and to discern it. What I'd like to do today is just to 
close by taking a few moments for each of us to respond to God in prayer. Under the ministry of the Word, under the proclamation of the Word, under the examples that we see here, to just go before the Lord and respond personally in a time, a season of silent prayer. We want to do that to just test our own profession of faith. Remember again how it is that we are reconciled to God, that we really don't want to treat the gospel as though it's given to exalt our sense of self or to fulfill our will and our purpose. That's not why we have the gospel. To just sort of improve our lives is one more thing among many that brings us rest and refreshment. We don't embrace God's gift of faith or receive His gospel in order to build our self-worth or strengthen our self-esteem. It's not what it's for. We embrace faith and receive the gospel because our sin has separated us from God for all eternity. And this is the only way possible for us to be reconciled to Him is by receiving it, dying to self and living to Christ. We receive the gospel for the glory of God and the exaltation of Christ who has provided it, all of which is achieved by the Holy Spirit's work in us, fulfilling the purpose of God. Important things for us to keep in mind. Let's take now just a few moments in silent prayer and speak to the Lord in response to His Word this morning. And even as we do, the musicians can return to the platform. Heavenly Father, we know that we have only allowed time for the beginning of a season of prayer that each of us needs to have before you. And by that, I don't mean to insinuate that everyone in here is in a place where their faith is in question. But Father, when presented with such a dichotomy, to see all that is at stake. There is a genuine fellowship for true believers that we enjoy with you, just celebrating the salvation that you have provided in Christ and delightfully walking through the dark corners of our lives to cleanse and to restore and to refresh and to surrender again to the claims of Christ and to the cleansing power of the Spirit that is ours through the gospel. But Father, for others who have been wavering on the edges for a long time, wondering just where they stand with you, perhaps even forgetting about their relationship with you for extended periods and then being reminded by accidental experiences and occurrences of the fact that they have professed to believe, yet makes very little difference in day-to-day -day life and can't really articulate or even understand the difference between using the gospel for my own purposes or actually surrendering to it for your purpose to be realized in us. And for those, Father, an extended season is needed as well. And I pray that your spirit would continue pursuing each of us according to our need. What a joy it is to know that your spirit does just that. 
if we are here this morning hearing this message and responding to it with a sense of draw into your presence to clarify these matters, Lord God, that does not come from our hearts. That comes from your Spirit. And I pray for each and every one here that they would be refreshed by the knowledge that the Spirit of God is pursuing them. And yet, Father, I pray that you would pursue them to the point of clear answers and clear faith genuine trust in Christ and joyful experience of the ministry of the Spirit made known in the the assurance in our own hearts of where we stand with you, but embellished, magnified through the fellowship of the body together as confessing believers that Jesus is Lord and King Father, I pray that you would do that work among us. Cleanse, purify your church for your glory and for the sake of the mission that we still pursue in partnership with our brothers and sisters here in the book of Acts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.